like we can meander. We are prone to meandering. That's all right. Living the Dream acknowledges the traditional owners of the land it is recorded on, especially the Jagera and Turrbal peoples, elders past, present and future, and their continuing struggles for justice and self-determination. Living the Dream is an irregularly published anti-capitalist podcast from Brisbane. Hi everybody, you are listening to Living the Dream and you're joined tonight by... John. And I'm Dave. Hey John, how's it going? Yeah, pretty good. Pretty yeah. good. Our cat is a bit sick, which is a bit sad, but oh, no I've good. had some time to read the book that we're reading tonight. So that's A bit of a different episode, good. right? Yeah, we have been lucky enough if that's the word, for a friend of the show. Josh um, from Brisbane. Josh, Brisbane, we're willing Brisbane to, we can, Josh, he's recently we can moved name back. Him. Yes, back to the Australia's best city. Um, and he has sent us, what book has he sent us, Dave? We both got a copy of Sally McManus's new book on fairness. Uh, so people obviously would know that Sally McManus is the Secretary of the Australian Council of Trade Unions. And her rise to this position has been, um, I guess, like relatively celebrated by a lot of people in the unions and in the left as like indicative of a change in the union movement towards a more militant class struggle position. In mm. particular, when she... Um, was elected to this position she did a famous speech uh a famous not a speech an interview um I, I think it was on the seven thirty report mm. um where she reaff- like really affirmed that she believed it was correct for unions to uh break the law when necessary and this seemed to coincide with the launching of the change the rules campaign as well so there is i think it's a feeling or an impression out there that the unions have made a shift towards the left to a more of a class struggle politics now that might be true that might not be true i think you know we've mm. raised a number of objections and queries about that um, and this book i guess really re- i understand it as an attempt to like clarify her position on paper yes yeah, no, I mean, that's that's how the book really, really, really opens, isn't it? It opens with that story about 7.30 report, how she's on there. Um, it's her first kind of role is to get on there and to say um, that she believes, yeah, that that, that, um, that if, a, if a law is unjust, then it should be broken, which, of course, is an honourable and correct approach to take. But it is also sort of tiring to hear about it over and over and over again yeah i do feel like it's she's kind of done that one thing and this is kind of like a meal bit of become a bit of a meal ticket um but at the at the outset of the show we do want to say that we are not here to critique sally mcmanus necessarily um or the potential ghostwriter of this book necessarily but to point out instead i guess what we think this book is which and what do we think the book's about, Dave? Yeah, I, yeah. I, look, I agree that um, is, I don't think we should really focus on um, 
on like look a critique of the current direction of the union movement tonight right and we did mm. raise that in our last episode uh shane who's a, a friend of the show uh, sometimes contributor to the show has put a comment on our last post critiquing some of the stuff that we said which we should go back to and look look into but i think we should really look at this book as like an ideological object not because I, not just because I think it's you know coming from someone who's relatively important in um, the ideological sphere of Australian society, but I think this book actually represents one of the probably the the mainstream left set of theory or thought today. That if you were to go out there and say what is the left position in Australia, I feel that On Fairness by Sally McManus is a good summation of that. So mm. what is kind of problematic about the book, I think, is bigger than oh Sally's got it wrong or us just mm. going, oh, you know, us being some kind of like theoretical ultra left pedants going, Oh, you're wrong on this mm. point, you're wrong on that point. But it's actually saying that there's some there's some deep misunderstandings in the contemporary direction of like the direction of the contemporary left in australia this is a good example talking about this might be a way that we can reorientate our thinking and that matters mm. right like that is not just a scholastic exercise that matters um i just did want to start john by something that's really interesting is because the book's called on fairness it's part of a mm. melbourne university press series which is all there's a whole series of on things isn't it so mm. i think Jermaine, you know, there's a there's a list at the front so you know everything from on sleep and on digestion um you know jermaine greer has a has a couple on rape on rage um mm. and i think uh yeah Tim uh, Sapomasan's got a one on on hate, which I think is being launched soon. So these are they're small books. I think it's less than about nine thousand words. Yeah, no, definitely little books on big ideas. Yes, it ah, is okay. as I would think a book for ants. It's so small <laughs> and yeah, easily digestible um, within a short. Within a, within a bit of a short sit down. I mean, yeah, frankly, I, you, you probably could have read it on the internet. Yeah. So um, um, we what we got these at the end of the the week, maybe on Thursday, yeah, and I've read yeah. it three, I've read it three times. Wow, um, you love it. You're, I know. Well, the, the, the the thing that I wanted to start with, of course, is the title on fairness. It's mm. interesting that the book does not actually is not really about fairness. It's um it, it's a book about the trade union movement. Um, the rise of neoliberalism in Australia and an attempt mm. to develop a new social democratic politics. But mm. something I was thinking just before the episode is, you know, Humphrey McQueen, so very important um, Australian uh, Marxist critique of political economy, intellectual activist, like his current project at the moment is obviously critiquing the, is focused on crit critiquing the idea of the fair wage. You know, mm. so th this is a, a, a Marxist, older Marxist point. You know, Marx in, in Value, Price and Profit, sometimes known as Wages, Price and Profit, has um, the great line. I've got it in front of me. Would you believe mm. that, John? Um, I do not believe it. Where, you know, he says, instead of the conservative motto, a fair day's wage for fair day's work, they ought to inscribe on their banner the revolutionary watchword, abolition of the wages system. And that's not just Marx mm. being a bit kind of fiery. Like mm. one of the points of the critique of capitalism is that capitalism by its own rules appears fair. You know, the, mm. the demand for a fair wage is that, you know, when that, that capitalism often pays the cost mm. of reproducing the labourer. Exploitation happens despite this. You know, mm. that, that fairness it itself works to actually understood as equal and fair exchanges works to um, 
kind of mask the operation of exploitation that continues under a condition of fairness. So it's really interesting where you have, you know, the leader of the trade union movement in Australia writing on fairness. There is already a mm. critique of this, right, that, that this is a conservative motto because it fundamentally um, masks what's going on. Yeah, but I, but I think it does tie into the labor to labor's historic mission, which has been to you know create a level playing field between workers and capital. Like that has always been labor's objective, and I think that that captures um, in the other um, kind of play on fairness that is laboured upon in the book somewhat the fair go. Um, this idea that if everyone has access to this colloquial term, the fair go, which they tie back to the to the strikes, to the 1890s strikes, and I don't necessarily disagree with that. But that's probably where it originated, but it is, it's interesting to note that this is not necessarily a new development, that fairness or the idea of, of some sort of equality of opportunity has never been too distant from the laborist program in Australia, which may be a different, which is quite different, to example, to similar social democratic programs in other countries. Yeah, I think that's true. And I also think this is a current theme that is in our conversations and I guess mm. our thinking that there's probably a bigger gap between like a trade union or a laborist politics. And so, you know, that's mm. labor without a U and a revolutionary mm. politics that they you know that they probably contest a similar space but but um mm. are, are quite are quite different and yeah i think mm. one of the things you can say like you know like rather than a critique of trade unions just to say well what what do trade unions do they regulate the sale of wage labor within capitalist society you know it's mm. probably better to have them than not have them because that sale is a is always a contentious and antagonistic moment um, but mm. we shouldn't get surprised that they're not revolutionary if that makes sense even though no. sometimes the experience that the class has through unions um, mm. historically has been the experience which has compelled them towards um, the level of confidence where they can engage in in revolutionary struggle and the thing that is interesting in the book you know it's a book that does see it's its main issue as fairness it poses a kind of historical narrative of the development mm. of fairness in australia then it makes the claim that australia today is unfair now mm. the there's a lot in this, like the claim that Australia today is unfair is based on two things. So um, one is rising levels of inequality and mm. the other is the falling proportion of tax share paid by the rich. Mm. What isn't in this book is a critique of exploitation. No, because the labour movement, as I said, doesn't necessarily see exploitation as a problem. It's exploitation on appropriate terms. Yeah, and I think this exploitation is, on correct terms. And I think this is also the pro this is why you know a fair day's wage for, wage for a fair day's work is a conservative slogan because rather than mm. understanding that exploitation is the norm of capitalism, however large mm. or small your wages are, it rather sees that exploitation is some add-on that happens when the rules go wrong. Mm -hmm. But look, I want to um, pull this back, John, because I think this is mm. really on your territory. You know, mm. as you mentioned, like Sally McManus locates the development of the term uh, the fair go out of a strike 
in the late 1800s. And the book basically sets up an antagonism in Australian society. And that antagonism is between Australian culture, which is pretty much defined as being fundamentally based around the idea of fairness. And some fairly naff sporting metaphors are used. Yes. um, Like, look at the way that people treat umpires at sporting games. This is indicative of a deep culture of fairness. And then this is posed against, I guess, kind of like neoliberal and conservative politicians and think and um and think tanks who are the real baddies of the piece. But as a historian, what do you think mm. of this claim about the fundamental fairness of Australian culture? Well, I mean, it's interesting because for me, there are two really stark things about the book. Is that firstly that there's basically half a paragraph given over to the historic role of labour in creating white Australia, which I think is really fundamental. They do, it is, you know, whoever wrote the book does indicate that it is, um, we're looking at both the impact of, you know, the white Australia policy and indigenous displacement, indigenous extermination, indigenous genocide. These are discussed briefly, but they're not really, they almost seem peripheral to the overall narrative of fairness. And I think that in and of itself is also indicative of the Labourite project, which is not nece- which has never necessarily seen exclusion from the ideal of the fair go as, as problematic, that the fair go can exist in a state of extreme inequality between races and that's never really been a problem for the Labour Eye program. I, I don't. I don't think. I think we should. Um, I think we should read the quote because I think you're actually underselling just how badly it fudges the issue of white Australia. Yes. Right? Well, can you can you give me a page? Dave? Well, I got it. I got it in front of me. It's page oh, thirty-two. Oh, okay. So well, why don't you why don't you give that a give that a bell? Okay. So the specific cultural traditions of the fair go imagined fairness in a way that was not universally applied. The fair go of the last century ignored the bitter battles that women had to fight for legal equality in the community and the workforce, and it willfully and it was willfully dangerously blind to the dispossession of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders and the brutal reality of racism and exploitation on which modern Australia was built. Wider social inequalities and discriminations manifested in the workplace too. But campaigns for empathy and solidarity, in which unions play their part, have expanded the fair go into an ideal whose power had grown as it has extended its reach, evolving into something that has spurred so much of our history, our art and literature, our cultural habits and national character. It's unsurprising the opponents of fairness are somewhat desperate to steal the language of fair go to make it their own. Now, I read this essentially as saying that it was kind of like it was a blindness or a, a limitation to um, the, the, the labor trade union politics that was overcome with time. But you recently wrote an article in a response to a, 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 a debate that went on in Jacobin, which mm. actually I think will argue that it's not just a blindness, but laborism in Australia was built on a white Australia policy that centrally excluded non-white people and was built around a gendered division of labour. That This is not some accident or some limitation of vision, but it was very clearly in the vision of the history of trade unions and labour and the labour movement in Australia. No, I mean, it's a great 
historic inadequacy to say that 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 Labour simply, you know, realised the error of its ways and and corrected sometime in the 1940s to the 1970s. I mean, this is the work, the hard work of 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 activists, well, of, within the Labour movement and outside of it, who transformed the Labour mainstream to reflect and to, they critiqued this politics. These were people from the communist tradition, but also beyond that, from indigenous rights groups, women's campaigners who who exposed the labor that 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 politics to critique and and drove labor to change its policy as much as as I argue in the piece that the kind of the economic realities of the capitalist system were also kind of quite central in labor kind of changing its tune on some of these on some of these points but yeah I mean to 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 say that this is um, what we call like a teleology. They propose like a teleology, a redemptive narrative of labor as being bad in the past, though unclear as to exactly what labor's role well, there was. You know, in the, in the book, there's no clarity on, on labor's role in any of that stuff, but that they've actually, that there's some improvement, a gradual improvement over time. There's just no real evidence to say that that has occurred organically within, within, the, within the Labour Party itself. Yeah, and, and I think also kind of fundamentally to it as well is that labour politics in Australia has mm. always been about, um, rather than um, the, the confrontation with capital, has been mm. used racist border policies to minimise the size of the labour market as mm-hmm. an attempt to keep wages high. That has been the mainstream mm. of, of labour trade union politics in Australia that good comrades and, and rebels have fought against. Right, yes. so th- th- that's that's fundamental too. Also combined with arbitration um, mm. and the like. You know, I think I've talked about this before. I can't bring it up all the time. There's that Frank Hardy quote. I'm going to mangle mm. it now from Power Without Glory. You know, the book you should read on the Labor Party, <laughs> even though it's a novel, where it's you mm. know it sees the basis of Australian laborism was you know the eight-hour-day arbitration, the white al- white um. Australia policy and opposition mm. to to selling alcohol on Sundays, you know, yep. like yep. That, that that's not the add-on. That that's the mainstream. So there's something like really problematic when if you set up the antagonism between Australian culture, fair, and these kind of baddies who mm. operate in the political or the ideological sphere, you're like you're you're kind of effacing like just how fundamental racism has been to Australia, how much a gender division of labour has been to Australia and just how fundamental it has been to the politics of trade unions and and the Labour Party and and the Labour movement itself. I think it's important to know that it's not just like an academic or a a kind of woke intersectional critique that says that these these things are elided in this book. It's actually central to understanding what labourism is as a historic material entity to understand the role that it has played in 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 keeping out in keeping the borders secure and in ensuring women's women's place has been maintained um, outside of the you know as much as possible outside of the formal economy as you said to maintain the the the, the relatively low um, l- supply of labor within the economy and i think this is this is about something like really important is to think about you know when when the working class kind of presented itself as an independent variable in society when like the the struggles of the 19th century increasingly coalesced as the expansion of capitalism increasingly brought more and more people together through industrial production and these people increasingly started to articulate desires for a different world there became this kind of 
you know, moment of, of two roads, I guess, between like those, I guess, within um, a class politics that aimed for the abolition of capitalism and those that then became part of a project of incorporation or, or management of capitalism. And, mm. you know, the, the very much the dominant mainstream tradition within the labour movement has been about the civilization of capitalism, the idea that mm. you can have a capitalism with a human face. And key to that was this racism. Because yes, you know, because key to it was the idea. Well, we had to protect in labour from competition. That competition was, you know, largely. And I, I think Humphrey McQueen's like um, New Britannia is spot on on this point, mm. right? Yeah, certainly. Like, I mean, I think you know, it's 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 an it's dated quite well. That book, you know, for all of its uh, student Maoism, it has uh, it has it has gone it has gone quite well. Yes, and I mean, I think the way that the historic gloss it's applied to um, to white Australia and whatnot equally is applied uh, to the Accord era, which gets a brief mention and Labor's role in neoliberalism. Um, what's the take there? Do you think? Yeah, this is really interesting. Um, so, the, the, I guess that continuity with the idea about it's about civilizing capitalism is is pretty much mm. um, ooh, interesting noise in the background there, John. Um, mm. Is the it continues in the book where it creates a kind of historical narrative that says that the post Second World War boom period was relatively like some kind of golden age, and mm. then at some time at the seventies. And look, I, I think this is... I'm going to read. This is amazing. So, in the post-World War II period, the Western democracies' governments had economic policies that were more about building institutions and infrastructure, regulating civic behaviour, and maintaining full employment levels, and providing quality public services. But then they were about letting business do whatever it wanted. And then the baddies come in. But mm. internationally, woo, internationally, free market think tanks like our Institute of Public Affairs campaigned to influence political parties, treasuries, business groups, economists, journalists and academics to believe that a deregulated market of business and corporate activity was the best economic means to assign resources to people. So the bad people... Um, and then mm. it presents a critique of how bad that is. And interestingly, like, the argument that it uses to say how bad neoliberalism is is a 2017 Washington Post story about Kansas economic policy. Like, that's the, mm. the example it, it picks. Um, and then, like, you know, one of the points it says, you know, everyone knows that this has now failed and Keating, mm. um, and they use... Paul Keating. Labor's yeah. Paul Keating is the Australian Prime Minister who, in the 1980s, led the most radical making of the Australian economy into a neoliberal framework. And that's a historical inaccuracy, right? Because it was, it was, mm. he was the treasurer for most of the period of time, and it was Hawke who actually yeah. was the Prime Minister. But, you know, maybe that's... You can forgive that. The yeah. government... He led, moderated the brownback version of neoliberalism. So the brownback version of neoliberalism is this Kansas version of yep. neoliberalism that happened in 2017. By retaining investment in expansive social programs, infrastructure and services, and worked with unions to extend and deliver positive initiatives like Medicare and compulsory superannuation. Um, now it talks about how it privatised things. Keating is remembered as a staunch defender of the open market. Um, but now he comes in and he says he's so it thinks neoliberalism is so bad. Uh, we have a comatized world economy held together by debt and central money, he said in 2000, March 2017. Liberal economics has run into a dead end and there's no answer to the contemporary malaise. I think, you know, yeah, look, th what this ignores, of course, like, 
that historical narrative is just so wrong <laughs> i guess like that that's where it's the hard point to get so first of all it goes back and say and says like why did the fawns for like what was the for fortis keynesian period i think the diagnosis yep. is wrong um yep. why it ended i think the diagnosis really is wrong about that. yeah well what the accord was i think that's wrong and then mm. what has happened to cause that monetary policy and central bank policy um that keating referred to is completely ignored like what is absent in that entire narrative is actually capitalism itself yeah no it's a as we often critique at the show it's an this is a um understanding level of ideas yeah it's like bad there's no understanding of you know that the crisis of capitalism the crap the, the crisis that capitalism entered in the mid-1970s which is very strange from a book theoretically from the left, that it pays absolutely no, it doesn't pay any real attention to how the Fordist model fell apart. It just puts it down to basically the failings of, or the the masterwork of, of idiots at the Institute of Public Affairs, you know, who, who, who are somehow able to, to, to influence this policy. Yeah, so it basically says post-Second World War to 1970s good because of good yeah. policy. Hmm. Then we have the, uh, uh, you know... Um, Something happens. Something happens, and <laughs> bad, bad things because of bad policy, leaving open the door to things can be good again because there could be good policy again. And mm. there's, there's a bit in the book where McManus basically argues that um, there was a jobs guarantee in Australia. Mm. So I, had, I read that quote to you before, didn't I? So Yeah. Look, I the, find it is on... Page. It's where you were just before. Yeah. About, it's about 1945. Okay. No, it's forward. It's on page 61. Oh, yep, yep. So, oh, I've got it. Yep. Like, but, so, like, what, one of the things the book, the book gets right is that mm. inequality in Australia is growing. Uh, wage, yep. wage growth has um, yep. stopped since about 2013 or growth. Like the le- no, it's not true. Um, the rate of wage growth has progressively slowed since 2013. And if you kind of mm. compare it, some of the stats in that period of time, if you look at the wage price index, so comparisons of growth in wages versus you know, other costs and, and consumer goods, there actually has been some decline in, in real wages in some of that period. Um, but it, and it kind of it makes this argument that one of the things driving privatization was an attempt to get rid of um, government employment so there'd be intensified competition in the labor market and this would force wages down. So it says in economies where jobs in a strong public sector are available, public employers have had to compete for workers by offering comparable pay and conditions. The effect of this situation are heightened when a government uses direct public service employment to meet the terms of a full employment policy because the workers aren't so afraid of unemployment that they'll bargain their workplace pay and conditions down just to avoid what happens when you're on new start for 30 years from world war ii john Curtin labor government to the end of the gough whitlam one in the 1970s australia had such a policy so i think this is saying that from the john Curtin labor government to the gough whitlam government's end of it Australia had a policy where the government used direct public service employment to meet the terms of full employment policy. Mm. Now, unemployment was incredibly low 
within that Fordist period. I found this great book. I bought it for like a dollar um, <laughs> a couple of years ago called Australian Capitalism Towards a Socialist Critique. And it yes. comes out in... Oh, when is it? It's like the early 70s. 72 or Yeah, 72. The, the reprint I've got, 77. And yeah. like for me, it's pretty interesting because it, it's like this kind of um, like lost world. Like oh, there's a really... You've all these people doing this incredible work on capitalism in Australia and only a few of them are kind of known today. And some of these people I assume are still alive, right? So, mm. um, you know... Uh, Humphrey McQueen's in this book. There's another writer in this book, um, Bruce McFarlane, which Humphrey McQueen is always telling people to read. Ted Wheelwright's in this book. For some reason, there's a kind of a division in the Australian left where we don't pick this stuff up, stuff up as much as possible. But mm. um, it's got some stats on on unemployment, so they're incredibly low. Like. Yeah. Um, so the number of registered unemployed as a percentage of estimated total workforce fluctuated between 0.3% average for 1948-9 to 1951 and 2.5% average for 1961-2. In recent years, it has fluctuated around 1%. So, that can be so it can be concluded that full employment has been substantially achieved in Australia. Now, I think there's two things to kind of consider here, like coming out of the Second World War, coming out of the Depression, mm. the war against fascism. The working class movement had kind of forced capital into a position, or those who represent capital, where they understood that um, if they couldn't just go back to the 1930s, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. you did get, coming out of the Second World War, you got the Bretton Woods organisations that internationally built a framework to reintegrate the world economy. And you then did have government policies who had full employment as their intention. My mm. point here is two things. I don't think they actually achieved that full employment through um, a jobs guarantee. No, they didn't need to. Like... The economy was there were there were there were there were, there were fewer workers than there were jobs during this whole period. They had no need for a public guarantee. Manufacturing was exploding during this time, and, I, and I, they I, couldn't get enough workers. There's no need for it. The public sector was quite small. The public sector has grown exponentially since the 80s. It was quite small in the 60s and 70s. I don't have the figures on that to hand, but I'm sure that it's. I'm pretty sure it's accurate. Yeah, and I think also, and this is the point that multiple authors in this book makes, it's that unemployment mm-hmm. was caused by a combination of the long boom itself. Like yeah. that, that capitalism in Australia was was booming. Now, yeah. that's the thing that, that, that essentially drives um, the, the, the then various forms of industry policy that aim to protect industries right so you know Mm. there was lots of tariffs various forms of state support but it wasn't a jobs guarantee itself and i don't think this is just a pedantic point it's important to get this history right because this history Mm. then leads into why fordism fails yeah so i i think you know like um what happens in i guess in by the, by the 70s, you have stagflation where all mm. the policies that define this period are falling apart. So unemployment is growing, um, it's in, inflation is growing, and the economy is stagnating. And those three things aren't meant to happen together for mainstream economic thought. But they happen together because there's a, a wave of rebellion that explodes yep. across the globe. Because one of the 
the impacts of um, incredibly low unemployment was that unemployment did, in fact, you know, like Sally says here, stop mm. functioning as a form of disciplining the class, right? So, yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, you know, and um, and I think we should also talk about as well that um, this is not a worldwide picture. It's the mm. the the conditions in in the global north were offset by hyper exploitation in the global south. And no, the, that's that's right. Yeah, and also what happens is the wars of national liberation, which like mm. burst open um, the international order, which allowed the the sustenance of those good conditions in the north, combined with people who were excluded from the deal for racial and gender reasons, um, mm. also rebelling, and and simultaneously people rejecting the kind of work discipline of the workplace. Yep. So it, it's these things that um, explode the, the Keynesian deal, and that's the space that, that neoliberalism enters into. And I think you could say that this also emphasises the important kind of role um, that, that theory plays. It's because the mainstream of the left at the time could not see a viable alternative that was beyond the Keynesian management of the economy, some form mm. of increase in social democracy. That's the reason, that, in part mm. of the reason, that neoliberalism was able to express popular hopes of the time. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and the accord was so, as um, as as Liz Humphreys argues in her new book on the topic, the accord was very much um, entered into consensually by all parties as a way, in a way, of of of, um, of doing what happened in the forties, kind of in Australia, but particularly in in Northern Europe, where the parties of labour and the parties of, of of capital come to an agreement around a high level, uh, around a a welfare state, which Australia never properly gets in the 1940s for a number of reasons. But there's this rollout of it in the 80s. There's a sort of attempt to model, you know, the provisions of Medicare um, in particular, but other, like, you know, decent um, unemployment benefits, for example. Um, these are rolled out in a way that they aren't rolled out in the 40s um, through, through a consensual agreement, right? And it's interesting that still today, you know, um, that this is, you know, we... That, that it was um, that McManus made a call like two days ago for basically the same sort of contract to be entered into again, uh, very much um, a contract of labor and capital coming together again. And as I pointed out to you earlier today, you know, like Yanis Varoufakis and others have recently made a call for the Bretton Woods for the reentry of somehow the, the, of, a, of the Bretton Woods style 1944 uh, international trade agreement. So these sorts of dreams continue to populate the imagination you know yeah because i think he's got a like from what i can remember of, of yara farkas's book the global minotaur i think he has an mm. argument that um Bretton woods in practice didn't live up to its potential because essentially he's yeah. kind of a keynesian right like that the that um the, the surpluses didn't get recycled in, in the way that they, they should get recycled so i think mm. the, like this is really the problem with the book right is this absence mm. of any engagement with capitalism and since there's no yeah. and absence of any engagement with capitalism it, it then allows you to believe that um, it's effectively policy what's important yeah. so there, there's a bit where uh, Sally McManus does say you know businesses are basically de delivered uh, driven by profit right that's what they care yeah. about but it understands businesses as being largely curtailed by um, the policy environment that they work within so mm. I've been thinking I think this is 
what we could call a weak understanding of capitalism. And, mm. and by this, I mean it's an understanding that thinks that the economy is um, fairly malleable. It's just kind of a machine that you can kind of point into different directions um, and you can achieve different things with it. So, you know, like in her narrative is there was a set of policies that kind of did things in the 40s and that pushed the machine a certain way. Then there was a mm. different set of policies and that pushed the machine a different way. So, like, if we have another set of policies now and really... I think what she argues for is increased trade union power, um, increased state um, employment and increased taxation on capital, right, to fund mm. state employment. If we get these things, we'll push the machine a different way. And I think this is quite different from what I would call a hard understanding of capitalism. So um, the people I think really exemplify this are Marx or uh, Rosa mm. Luxemburg, for example, um, I've actually been thinking about Rosa Luxemburg and this stuff quite a lot because I've been reading Rosa Luxemburg um, as part of the, you know, I did a, a presentation at um, a, an event that Feminist Action organised in, in Brisbane to, to commemorate the 100th anniversary of her murder. And, you know, it, this is the idea that actually no capitalism as like a mode of production is the mm. dominating force within the social order and it invariably pushes in certain directions. Sure, capitalism looks different in certain situations. Class struggle shapes how things play out. There are contingencies of history, yada, 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 all that kind of stuff. But basically, the machine goes one way, <laughs> you know? Mm. And, I, and I think that's that's a real, like, in Australia at the moment, that's a minority understanding. That mm. the, the weak understanding of, of capitalism is um, probably the dominant one. And it coincides with more people who are looking towards the electoral sphere um, as their mode of action. Because I kind of think as well, you know, like, um, you know, this book is also published on the eve of what will probably be a crushing Labor Party victory. Um, yeah. I don't think you, you have to have... Like, I saw at this Rosa Luxemburg presentation, Nicole did one of the best arguments I've ever seen for electoral engagement, if not the best argument I've ever seen for electoral engagement, where you mm. can argue for, you know... Tactically, we need to engage in electoral processes and con contestations, but you can still have an, a hard understanding of capitalism. But you mm. know, I think this is really a, a weak one, and it's an it's a massive error because um, it it fails to understand the direction which capitalism is invariably pushed. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it's. I mean, the whole argument is 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 quite weird. I mean, if you look at the period, like I posted this, this graph, I was, I was looking into this, and there's an interesting graph I came across which I can link to, which is about the the percentage of wealth that was in the hands of the 1% in Australia from like the 1920s. And the period from World War Two until the accord is signed sees a non-stop decrease in the amount of wealth the 1% in Australia holds. holds. So I don't know how that sits with the argument, you know, that capitalism is necessarily always in one trajectory. Certainly, I think probably more points towards it, the, the strength of organized labor is probably really, can, it really dictates the distribution of the social pie to a certain extent. And after then, of course, in the 80s, you get a spike, which is associated with Alan Bond trying to, you know, sell everything he could as quickly as he could uh, before it all falls apart. But then from the accord onwards, we see an increase again in and in um, you know, like a very clear increase 
in the amount of which the 1% holds. And the other thing, and this goes back to the other interesting point of the book, is they never talk at all, I don't think, about union membership. Is there a point in, in the book that, that the current membership of the trade union movement is discussed? Uh, ooh, that's a good one. Because <laughs> it seems like a fairly important question. The me- to talk membership about. is to, like there's a lot of kind of rah rahism in this book, yeah. uh, like a lot of blowing air into the tires. So mm. there, there is. Um, oh no, hang on. Yeah, it does. It does. Mm. So my generation of unionists in our 40s and younger grew up seeing yes. a combination of anti-union laws, legal restrictions on union organising mm. and proper campaign, propaganda campaigns working to reduce union membership mm. in Australia to but 15%. Is that, is that historically accurate? No, I don't think it is historically accurate. <laughs> you know, no, I mean, if we see, you know, what leads to the, you know, both the decline in trade union membership, notwithstanding, you know, attacks on the public sector, which had a really big effect on it in the 90s, and also the amount of the increases of inequality in Australia, these are connected fundamentally to the accord. They're not, necess- they're, they're not necessarily connected to anti-union campaigns. Like, that is, again, at the level of ideas. It's like no one cares about these weird anti-union campaigns. People care about if unions are winning things for them or not. Mm. I think I would go a different direction than that, John, and mm. say one of the things that actually has happened as well has been the structural reorganisation of the composition of capital yeah, in Australia. Yes. Yep, yep. So, you know, I think and that's also when we talk about capitalism. You know, I, I, maybe how do we square these two different arguments, which are like me being very kind of, you know, capitalism is dri- driven by its own autonomous internal logics and then you saying, mm. you no know, class struggle also has an impact. And as soon as you said that, I was like, yeah, of course it does. You know, like mm. um, how, how to, be, be, because I particularly want to emphasise how class struggle broke the previous mm. arrangement, the Fortis arrangement, and yep. and compelled it. But one thing that happens in this interaction is changes in the composition of how capitalism actually organises. So I think you could say that for a lot of the 20th century in places like Australia, there's a particular organisation of capitalism probably built around the large workplace. Mm. We've talked about this before, the steelworks in Newcastle and and mm. Wollongong, you know, um, car construction, mass employment in docks, you know, um, abattoirs, these kind of things that had a particular form of work that complied with a particular form of organisation. The accord mm. period um, which breaks... Um, the growth of wages also disciplines labor to allow the kind of dropping in in job numbers caused by capital leaving these for these these industries and moving to other ones and yeah. a lot and a lot of the um the drop in union membership i think is also caused by capital move moving to new industries that have a different internal organisation which doesn't correspond to the organisational form of trade unions broadly. Some trade unions in the the 40 years have been successful recruiting in these places. And I'm not Mm. saying that the the antagonism between capital and labour doesn't exist there. I think it, it does, but it takes a form and a language and a culture that doesn't correspond to the history of trade unionism in Australia. Um, and so this is, you know, and we, we talk about where, where people are employed now to where they used to be employed. And I think for um, me that one of the classic examples talking about the Accord is like a story that, you know, that Nick Southall tells about, you know, the end of the Fraser government, um, 
sees a whole series of industrial struggles, right? So mm. strikes in mines, you know, a, a kind of almost a storming of Parliament House. And apparently, um, you know, Bob Hawke goes to address a, a mass meeting of, I think, BHP workers in Wollongong, mm. you know, who are facing mm. these job cuts as capital is restructuring. And his response is, I don't have a magic wand. Yeah. Right. So you know that your jobs are going to go, and then um, what the government does is give funds to BHP, which are then used, you know, to to save the industry, which are then used to sack people. Yeah. So those funds are then used to restructure and retrain, and I think it's this transformation that has also happened um, is also really important um, because the majority mm. of class life of the experience of work happens in Australia today, in newer industries with no history of trade unions. And yep. I don't think this can just be... Like, I think people always need to struggle together to develop solidarity, and at some point that'll form organisational links. That might look like unionism in the abstract if that actually looks like the forms of organisations that make up today's current unions is a, is a different thing. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, I think that's totally right as well. Um, we can both be right. To an extent. <laughs> um, so, like, I think, um, like, the other thing that it really reminded me of um, was mm. uh, Rosa Luxemburg uses the concept of utopia or utopian really interestingly. Mm. And, you know, for her, it's critiquing forms of thought that think you can do things within capitalism which the dynamics of capitalism itself don't allow you to do mm. so like um one of the people she critiques in the accumulation of capital is a uh, german uh, like, i think he's a like what they called a bismarckian socialist so he's got mm. rod burdus which basically you know wanted to get bismarck German histories of Germany in the 19th century. Tweet at me if I'm wrong here. Um, uh, he basically what he wanted to do is get Bismarck to intervene into the German economy. And his concern was that as capitalism developed, the overall share of, of wages tended to decline. So what you, And he thought this was going to create a crisis of overproduction and also was just generally unfair. So what you wanted to needed to do was to um, have the state make sure that you legislate that the share of, of income going to wages stayed at at the same level, so you'd prevent this crisis. And what Luxembourg argument she says is, well, as capitalism develops, there's a general tendency for the amount of capital to be invented in, in the means of production, in technology, to grow in relationship to um, the amount of capital that's spent on employing people. So what you're trying to do is to do something that would make capitalism impossible, but you basically still want to keep keep capitalism. This is utopian. You know, mm. so it's, and I think this is some of the, the thinking that's expressed here. That there's this idea that, okay, you know, um, what we we do is we just see if we can in increasingly tax capital, that we can raise wages, that we can spend, um, you know, more on on public services. So that is, you know, reduce the profits of capital in Australia, but we'll still mm. get capitalism. And you do get an argument in this book where where she's saying, and this will make capitalism better, you know, because yeah. she has this this critique, which is, um, you know, the the Morrison, the Morrison, um, and then the Turbo governments want to want to cut 
taxes for companies, saying yep. this will lead to higher wages. This is trickle-down economics. It doesn't work. Um, what we should do is actually support the rise in wages. This will actually make capitalism be better because people will be able to deal with dynamics. You know, it'll, I'm not sure mm. if he says it'll increase effective demand at all, but I think that's fundamentally, like, it's wrong. Mm. Like, um, But it I, is in keeping with my argument of labour as being the really dynamic force, dynamic party of Australian capitalism. And that, you know, they're the ones who are always trying to ensure that, you know, capital's able, capital, like the ca- parties of capital in Australia are pretty crap. I'd like yeah. actually being able to ensure capitalist reproduction. Mm. Labor's always much better at it. Yeah, totally. Well, yeah, the, the Fraser couldn't introduce the accord. I think that, that's right. Yeah. But I think it's also wrong in the sense that if you did a set of policies that hit, hit into profits... Like I think what that would do, that I think it would it would cause it generally would cause a capital flight. Like mm. it's interesting thinking about that argument about tax cuts, right? So, um, like she, she doesn't really address the argument as it's made. Like the the argument for tax cuts um, leading to increased wages is actually a, a shared. I think we've talked about this before. Like it's a shared piece of mainstream economic thought around the production right. function, right? So it basically says that if companies have more money, they will spend more money being more productive. And if labor becomes more productive, then it will get paid more because you get paid in relation to your productivity. Now that's obviously fucking bullshit, right? But yeah. both both the liberals and the labor party believe this. Yeah. Now, in fact, what, what we're seeing is, um, you know, like the companies that were surveyed, they're going, well, actually, we're not going to spend any more money on employing people and production. We're just going to pay out shareholder dividends or invest it in financial markets, right? So mm. it's a good kind of gotcha to the Turnbull government, but it also is a problem for her politics because it's true that the amount of capital that goes to financial markets and goes into shareholder dividends is, is increasingly growing, right? It's interesting yeah. to know why that's happening. But if you in, introduced, like, in a... If you introduce the kind of policy she's arguing for, wouldn't that just increase more capital flight? You know, if if the tendency of capitalism is to leave production anyway, because we exist in global capitalism, more you know, like if you mm. think what you're going to do is just and this is why, like this is why you need to be revolutionary, right? Well, because the problem, it was the same problem with the accord, as you know, that they kept trying to push up wages, wages kept going up, it didn't matter. The purchasing power of those wages didn't improve because inflation increases. Because right? inflation so, yeah. kept going up. Inflation kept going up. This was a global problem. It wasn't yeah. just um, wasn't just an Australian problem. But you know, yeah, totally. And that, that's part of the problem in the seventies too. Is mm. is you know, and, and then the price mechanism doesn't work. So, like, mm. the, the the argument isn't for, and therefore we just have to have brutal capitalism. The argument yeah. for is that in in certain contexts, like like. Struggles mm. that only see themselves as like smashing into the dynamics of capital, or say you know lowering profit or or whatever, um, mm. just make just either makes capitalism malfunction, um, mm. or capitalism brutally reasserts its own logic at some point. Yep. You know, like you could like that's a thing. Like you could see the crisis of the seventies and then the imposition of neoliberalism as the logic of capitalism imposing itself over a forty-year period. That after mm. you know you could maintain a level of un- of employment that was particularly high for a certain period of time, but as, when it broke, you know, capital in the late sixties and early seventies, that that logic had to reapply reapply itself. You know, like mm. Marx has an argument in. The end of volume one of Capital, where he basically says, you know, um, okay, so 
you might have a period of time where the demand for labor um, is so great versus the pool of labor that wages rise but if they rise to a point that they hit into the acceptable level of profits then investment mm. slows so the demand for labor drops so unemployment rises again you know like and and i think it's it, this is why you know we're not just about being purists but we need to have like a politics for today but if you don't have a vision beyond capitalism all you get is bad capitalism that's right yeah we said we wanted to make this one a shorter one, Dave, and that seems like a good, a good, a good point on which we might start to wrap up. Yeah. Okay. Anything? Like, anything you feel we missed, John? Um, not really. I mean, I think it's it's interesting just to return, I guess, briefly to the concept of fairness and just to think about, you know, what does that mean? Like you said, I mean, it seems to mean for McManus and for for labour in general now. Is it necessarily like an egalitarian society? which you would argue was definitely the case for the labor movement up until say the 40s but they would venture that what laborism was about was ensuring that you know that 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 kind of in a way a sort of gradual abolition of of, of class distinction of wealth differentials is i don't think that's actually what their politics is about now i mean we don't just need to look at the graph where you know labor or you know the the the, the politics of the, 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 you know, pretty much the politics of the Hawke-Keating era, which have continued until 2008 and arguably now have seen, you know, significant increases in, mm. in the gap, in, in those gaps. We don't, we, but, 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 that um, labor, like this, this, on, there's nothing in here about, you know, like following on Samuel Moyne and others who are, who are thinking about kind of this politics of, of, of wealth differentials. There's nothing in here about like a ceiling on wealth. Mm. Like there's critiques of kind of the people have too much money, that like the bloke who owns Domino's has too much money, but that's more a problem of taxation and that they need to be taxed more rather than a problem of kind of of a gradual sort of leveling. Yeah, well, because because the capitalist social relationships are left untouched. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you know, so which which again is what you'd expect from someone who's a trade union leader, but as an argument in the left is is a problem. Yeah, you know, and I think it's 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 why you know Humphrey's right to start at the beginning about mm. why fairness because it mm. ends up being so fucking vague. You know, what what's fair is largely what the social powers de- determine. I, if we yeah. want to finish, I did find I've got another cool quote from Value, Price, and Profit. Um, where uh, Marx is talking about the demand in his period of time for people should have equal wages. Mm. And so he says, to clamour for equal or even equitable retribution on the basis of the wages system is the same as to clamour for freedom on the basis of the slavery system. What you Mm. think just or equitable is out of the question. The question is what is necessary and unavoidable with a given system of production. Mm. And I think that that's what this this book um, it doesn't come to grips with, like what is necessary for capitalism to function, and why, you, if you want to achieve you know a different kind of social order, then you have to get out of the system of production itself. Mm. That's right. So, Dave, out of you got a choice of one to five labour hacks. How many? How many? How many? How many labor hacks out of five do you give it? Ooh, it's a hard benchmark. Um, I, I look, <laughs> I think it's a pretty bad book, like one and a yeah. half. 
Yeah, I was going to go with one and a half or two. Like, they put the effort in. It's got a nice little colourful emblazoning of the the standard eight hours labour, eight hours recreation, eight hours rest banner on the front and back covers, you know. Yeah. Holds together. Smells like a book. It doesn't smell like fruit. No. Um, so I, th- I think, story. yeah, I think pe- I think people should read it, mm. right? Like I think people should read it because it's a good example of mm. a common argument, an argument that I think will become louder um, mm. with the Labor victory, even though I don't think there's anything in what the Labor Party is imagining to do that comes close to what people who have faith in change the rules think they're going to mm. do. But it, it should be read as like a first step to starting to address these the, these ideas, if they are popular, with the level of popularity in the class. Yep. All right, cool. Well, you've been listening to uh, Living the Dream. John, we didn't introduce ourselves on Twitter. Where are you on Twitter? I'm at uh, John Puccini. And I am at With Sober Senses. We'd like to thank Brisbane Josh um, for buying us books. Uh, look, if anyone else out there wants to um, buy us books for to hear our commentary on, yeah. you know, get in contact. Um, friend of the show, Alex, said we're like the Uber Eats of critical theory. Well, yes. Except Poorly as pointed paid. out, we don't get paid. We don't get paid at all. I yeah, know. Um, it's a shame. Look, I, look, we've got some other shows in the works. So yeah. I, I've got, I did a recording um, with Alexander about his book on the anti-nuclear movement in Japan. It's almost um, finished being edited. A, um, a listener really wanted us to do a show on the struggles and conditions of, of sex workers in Australia. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to record an interview tomorrow. Um, cool. And, John, we've got another show on this question of the Labor Party really prepped and lined up which we're going to record tonight but we might do it in a week or two weeks what do you reckon yeah yeah i think that's good who knows what'll happen in the meantime yeah look so crazy um, world yeah thanks for thanks for um listening to us i'm going to try to get this show out either tonight or tomorrow to to keep it fresh um cool you've been listening to living the dream Every job they offer used to kick you out the door Carry your opportunity to one and never